As we come again before the very word of God, if you'd like to read along with me, we'll be in Luke chapter 2. These are the opening verses of of Luke's gospel in chapter 2. But before we read, would you please pray with me? Our great God, you are good and gracious to us. You've sent your Son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So, Lord, now would you save each of us from any unbelief in us. Help us in these holy things to behold our King with trust and with wonder. Cause us to believe and to follow you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. This is Luke in chapter 2. We'll take up this morning these first 20 verses. I think you'll recognize them. This is Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. In those days, A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you, you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. 
This is the word of God. Now, it's probably no big surprise to anyone that this is our scripture text. Today is Christmas Eve day, after all. This is a popular passage to hear around this time of year. Most of us, maybe all of us, are, are pretty familiar with this account. Uh, you maybe even bump into this, at least in small part, at least once a year. Maybe you see it in your own devotion somewhere on TV. Uh, if you were at our candlelight service, you heard it. Maybe uh, the Christmas cards that may be hanging on your fridge right now might have some of this on it. I think I even preached out of this same text last Christmas, uh, although I don't expect that you would remember uh, that far back. I had to look it up uh, myself. Um, we might be in the same text, but this is not going to be the same sermon. I could preach, this is not a brag, it's just a reality, I could preach out of this exact same text every Sunday all year and preach 52 different sermons. And that's not because the words mean different things to different people, and everything just depends on your own interpretation. That's not it. There's a real meaning. There's a real in intention in the text itself that we're trying to draw out. But there is just so much going on in such a small space. We know that the whole Bible, all parts of the Scripture are good and useful to us. It is, after all, the Word of God which is given to us, and so, so we don't want to just hang out in our favorite parts. We don't want to miss uh, any page, any nook or cranny of the Bible. And at the same time, there are some parts of the Scripture that carry, if I can say it this way, carry a little bit more weight than others. This is one of those weightier parts. Here is a completely unique and unmatchable moment in history when God himself enters the world as a man. In this moment, the spheres of heaven and of earth are converging at an ordinary stable in the soft and wrinkly face of incarnate deity the promises long made from ages past are finally coming true here as Christ is born today. And so for, for us to try to take in all of what's happening at once, that would be like trying to take all the stars of the sky and, and smash them into a bucket. We just don't have, have the space for it all. So the best that we can do is just take things a bit of a at a time, hold on to what we can, and ask God to enlarge our hearts to be able to receive it. So the particular bit that we've been taking up and being uh, focused upon this Advent season is we've been looking at the theme of expectation, of expecting. That with Elizabeth, she was expecting her reproach to be removed. With Mary, she was expecting a blessing from God. With John the Baptist, we're expecting that he'll prepare the way of the Lord. So now, with the coming of Jesus, what is it that we're expecting from him? 
You know, Mary and Joseph were both told that the Christ child is coming. Mary, I'm sure, felt it in her rib cage. even. Uh, they knew to expect him. They even knew that he's the son of the Most High God, but they were not told how the child was going to be born after he was conceived. So a lot of the circumstances around the birth of Jesus, I'm sure, were unexpected to them. I don't imagine they expected to be on the road far from home when she kicks into labor. It was probably unexpected that the baby's first nursery uh, would be out among animals. Uh, that the baby's first bed is going to be in a feeding trough for livestock. That the baby's first visitors are a scruffy bunch of random shepherds who show up in the middle of the night with this wild story about an angel from, uh, from high with a host of God's angels that came. Even for the shepherds, you know, when they nestled down that night for bed, the sheep are all bleating, doing whatever it is that they sheep do at bedtime, when everyone quiets down and they finally get nestled in, they probably didn't expect that this night would be anything other than ordinary. A lot of our expectations don't turn out the way we think. But in the middle of all of these unexpected events around this birth, there's at least one expectation, at least one, that does come to pass because they're given a report about it. The angel of the Lord tells the shepherds exactly what they're to expect if they go into Bethlehem. The angel says, here's the sign. You're going to find a newborn baby swaddled in a manger. That's what you're looking for. So Bethlehem at this time is, is a small village. We don't know how big, but probably not that much bigger than, than Rensselaer. So a tiny little community, not a whole lot of mangers to go through. So here come the shepherds in the middle of the night uh, going to follow up on this angel report, checking each manger to see if there's a baby in it. <laughs> and, and they get to one, and you can maybe hear the child crying. I don't know the circumstance. Maybe there's some folks bundled around it. But, but they get to one manger, and they look, and sure enough, there's a newborn in this one. And someone, you know, Joe looks to his buddy shepherd and go, yep, this must be, this must be it. I think we're in the right place. This is the kid the angel talked about. They found the baby just as it had been told them. This is what they were expecting from the angels. And yet in the middle of this one expected moment, there's still an aspect of that expectation that's unsatisfied. Not unsatisfied because the angels were wrong or because it's untrue. Unsatisfied because it just hasn't happened yet. The angels told the shepherds where the child would be in a manger. They also told them who the child would be. It's in verse 11, one of the most famous parts of this whole scene. The words are these. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This baby in a manger will be a Savior. And that hasn't happened yet. It hasn't been fulfilled yet. There's still some sense of lingering expectation. So imagine it this way. Imagine that the angels had, had said this instead. Okay, just bear with me for a moment. 
the angels show up and say to the shepherds, unto you is born this day in the city of David a baker who is Christ the Lord. He hasn't baked anything yet, right? This child's just an infant. But if I go see that kid, I, you know, I look him in the face. He's just a small little, you know, one day old. And I think, well, the angels want us to know that you're going to be a baker, huh? Wow. Must be some good bread. Can't wait to taste it. That's the sense. So Jesus is not a baker. Well, maybe he was. I don't know. Maybe he made cake that we don't know about also. But he's at least, uh, if he's not a baker, he is at least a savior. So the impression when they see him would be, oh, a savior, eh? Wow. Must be a good salvation. Can't wait to taste it. This expectation, then, is that Christ is born to save. And if Christ is born to save, the big question for us, then, to unpack in the rest of our time is, what does that mean? What does it mean that Christ is a Savior? You know, in Christian circles, I mean, I don't know, people don't talk about saviors much outside of religious things, but in Christian circles, uh, that, that word, savior, we've gotten pretty used to thinking about it as attached to Jesus. You know, you see it on bumper stickers, right? Jesus saves. Maybe signs out in people's yard. Maybe if you're in, in context where people share a testimony, if that's a thing, you know, you'll hear people say, oh, I got saved by Jesus. It's in, it's in lots and lots of our music just around Christmas, you know, God, God rest you, merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior is born on Christmas Day, uh, and, and the reason that the Christian men rejoice, whoa, Got some notes accidentally in there. Should not sing in the microphone. The reason why the Christian men rejoice is because Christ is born to save. It's not just in Christmas music either. In a lot of our non you don't have to work hard to bump into one. We have hymns called Jesus Savior, Pilot Me, and Savior Like a Shepherd, Lead Us. Comments about saving is everywhere in our circles. Even some of our favorite Bible verses have it in it. The Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, and it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith, this is a gift of God. It's a good thing, then, for us to hear this often, to know it, to believe it, that Jesus saves. But with that knowledge, we really need to consider what is it that Jesus is saving us from? If he came to earth to save, what does Jesus save us from? You know, some, some Christians are quick to jump in with a quick answer. I know it. I know this one. I learned it in Sunday school. Jesus saves us from sin. Right? You'll hear that from some people, and that's certainly true. 
The angels told Joseph that explicitly in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus would save his people from their sins, he's told. But in this scene here in Luke, in this big announcement from the angels, and now that we're eavesdropping upon, the angels make no mention here of sin at all. They don't specify what Jesus is going to save people from. They just call Jesus Savior. And the shepherds here are going to hear that word Savior differently than some of us hear it. They're going to hear it through a lens of generations of people. That all throughout the generations of the Old Testament and into the New Testament, God had given his people many saviors. There were lots of saviors that came from God. And they didn't save the people from sin. They saved the people from something else. There's a, a prayer uh, given by Nehemiah. If I can find him, there he is. Nehemiah. Uh, listen for what the people are saved from. This is in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse, let me find it, 27. He says, Therefore you... God, you gave them into the hands of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hands of their enemies. Did you hear it there? God gave them saviors who saved them from the hands of their enemies. Saviors, in an Old Testament context, save us from enemies. Save us from people who would be a source of misery and suffering for us. And over and over and over, God sends his people saviors, deliverers, to rescue them from their enemies. Moses saved the people from the Egyptians. Gideon saved the people from the Midianites. David saved the people from the Philistines. The whole book of Judges is basically an end-to-end, back-to-back series of saviors that the people are given into the hands of their enemies until the Lord, by his power and mercy, raises up one who would save them. So now the shepherds hear this glorious announcement from the skies. Today is born to you in the city of David a Savior. And they're not thinking in theological terms. They're not thinking about sin and forgiveness and all of that. They're thinking in very practical terms. They're thinking of Savior as victor, as conqueror, as ruler. The summary of it all is that the Savior saves us from enemies. Now, some would say, well... That's just what the shepherds thought, but they didn't know any better. You know, if they lived long enough, they'd see Jesus grow up and, and they'd learn about sin and all that stuff, and they'd learn that, that the Savior means something uh, more than just that. But let's not dismiss this too quick. You know, the shepherds weren't off base in thinking about Jesus saving as saving us from enemies. The prophets were leading them all in that direction. Micah, you know the guy that talks about Bethlehem? We did it in our call to worship, heard these words. When Micah talks about Bethlehem and the promised one who would be in Bethlehem, 
Um, he says this, listen to what the, the one from Bethlehem saves the people from. This ruler, the shepherd of shepherds, in chapter Micah 5, verse 6, he will deliver us or save us from the Assyrians when he comes into our land and treads within our border. They're saved from a particular people group who would oppress them. That's what Micah says. And Isaiah, you know, the guy that says the famous passage, to us a child is born, to us a son is given. We just heard it today from Betty Ann. Thank you. Uh, the context of that verse is that they're being saved from the yoke of their enemies. This is Isaiah chapter 9, verse 4. From the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is talking about the promised one, Jesus, in terms of saving people from their enemies. And of his government, there will be no end. Now, I know that some people are going to hear me and the scriptures say the word government and think immediately about politics, think we're talking about different countries or nations. That is not mainly what Jesus came to confront. In recent uh, months, years, there's been a surge in the United States of talking about Christian nationalism. And that's just a whole bunch of foolish nonsense. People that talk about Christian nationalism don't know what they're talking about. They're at least not talking from the scripture. If you don't know what Christian nationalism is, good. <laughs> uh, if you bump into it, you can just ignore it and move right on by. Jesus the Savior is not a political figure. He did not come to face off against the Assyrians, the Midianites, or even the major empire in the first century, Rome. That's not what he's doing. If we look through his ministry in the Gospels, we'd see that Jesus doesn't care that much about engaging the national governments at all. He barely even mentions the Caesars and the other people, the rulers who are in charge. The Savior Jesus does save his people from their enemies, but the enemy isn't mainly kings, isn't mainly empires, isn't mainly nations or countries. That's just too small for his purposes. Jesus is a bigger kind of Savior who is going to take on a bigger kind of enemy. Enemy of both the physical and the spiritual. Jesus isn't fighting battles with countries. Jesus came to save us from things like disease, devils, deceit, destruction, deception, demons, and even death itself. The shepherds were told that Jesus 
is a savior, that he's a deliverer from enemies, but the scope of that salvation was far greater than they could have guessed. You know, if those shepherds lived long enough to see it, they would have seen Jesus as he grew save people from infestations of demons that made a man go mad. They would have seen Jesus save, save people from the wild waves of stormy seas, either as they're out on the boat or trying to walk on water. See Jesus save a woman from a 12-year-long crippling blood disease. See Jesus saving people from the trickery of hordes of wolves who are feeding on the vulnerable, tender sheep of the church. Jesus came to save from all of that. And he saves not with a sword, not with a spear, not with a shotgun. He saves with just a word of his power and with a touch of his hand. And when he does that, the enemies fall to their knees. Now, the hardest part of this for us to reckon with, because it's very personal, is that Jesus even saves us from the fiercest of enemies, which is ourselves. He saves us from the fiercest of enemies, ourselves. That's what the Bible tells us. Every Christian, every person who believes in Jesus, who is reconciled to God through Jesus, every one of us, at one time were enemies of God by our own sin. And we made ourselves enemies. So Christ saving us isn't just something he does on the outside. Get rid of those people, those places, those things. It is something he needs to do from the inside because I am my own worst enemy. No one can destroy my life more than me. That's why the old theologian Augustine, if you know that name, he prayed a prayer that I love. Oh, Lord, save me from myself. Do you feel that? Lord, save me from myself. I certainly have. And we know as, as enemies of God, we deserve God's wrath, God's damnation. He didn't make war with us. We started the war. But God the Father has sent his son at Christmas not to condemn us, but to save us. And in order to save us from ourselves, Jesus must become both rescuer and conqueror. He has to rescue us and conquer us at the same time. In order to make us truly alive, there's a sense in which Jesus must bring us to die, must defeat us. That's what the Apostle Paul is talking about when he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's good news. <laughs> to actually have to die doesn't sound like good news, but it is. Because now Christ lives in me. Ah, that's another sermon. Our bucket is full enough already. 
Let me just end with this. You know, we often hear uh, people pushing us to remember the true meaning of Christmas, right? Christmas isn't about the presents and the shopping. It's not about the tinsel and trees and hustle, bustle, family, friends. It's not about all those things. It's about Jesus. Jesus came to save us. That's a good reminder, right? Jesus really is the reason for the season that's true. We can take it a step further in a way that will be even better for us. We need to remember what it means that Jesus saves. Our Savior is not just about the warm fuzzies of forgiveness. He's not just about the whole sentimentals of soft salvation. Our Savior is about conquering enemies. Conquering enemies, including us, for good. So then the, the feet of this newborn baby wrapped in a manger in Bethlehem, those tiny little tootsies that you just want to nibble on, those, those tiny little feet, those feet of Christ will one day grow to have every enemy put under his feet. And in that day, Christ will reign as a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Pray with me. Lord, this is your work that you have done as you've come to earth to save. In your word, our eyes have seen your salvation, so would you help us now to to, to believe, to receive these things, and to find rest in them. You are a truly great God, and, and we want to give you glory in the highest as we worship you as Christ our King. Thank you for coming to save us, and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.